Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today our guest is Kevin Marshke, and Todd Barnes, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, connected us, Kevin, and we were able to arrange this time to have a conversation and remember the games in Salt Lake. So, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us this morning. How are you? I'm great, Chris. I, um, I appreciate it. Appreciate being on the on the podcast. Well, I appreciate you contributing and I appreciate all of our listeners who tune in. And before we talk about Salt Lake, we want to talk a little bit about what you're doing these days. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're joining us from and what you're currently working on? Um, as I did with when I was working on Salt Lake, I uh, reside in Tucson, Arizona, and um, I actually commuted every week for three years to Salt Lake, uh, Monday through Friday to do the games. Um, but I'm doing still living in Tucson, still doing events, doing similar things a lot for the NFL. That's where Todd and I are still heavily connected. Um, I this will be my 22nd Super Bowl that uh, I'm working on. I'm doing the overlay, engineering, design, operational management, similar to what I did in Salt Lake for all the venues. Um, I've also, try, um, we're trying to do FIFA World Cup. We're trying to get other projects um, in between Salt Lake. And now I've done other Olympic games. I've done other uh, cricket World Cups. I've done uh, equestrian games. And so I've just kind of stayed in the whole event business. Uh, my position with ME Engineers is I'm the director of event services. So um, we just uh, continue to do engineering and continue to do events. Well, I want to ask you about the NFL specifically. Uh, how's it going now with all of this uncertainty? You know, the seasons are a little bit wonky. We're hearing about teams uh, maybe having to quarantine or cancel games. Um, what's the situation there with the National Football League and the uh, hopefully upcoming Super Bowl? I was in Tampa last week, uh, so we're going forward. Um, I know uh, Tennessee had an issue, but I don't think it's all been worked out. Uh, they may postpone their game from Sunday to Monday. Um, but all the teams kind of, just like the NBA and the NHL, all the teams knew what they were looking at. And so I think they have other players and they've just done, they've tried to pre-plan so that this won't have as uh, heavy an effect. Um, I know there a lot of stadiums are having no fans um, and obviously then no concession workers or stadium workers um, for the Super Bowl. No one's going to be allowed on the field, but players and, and people involved with the game. So they're doing the best they can to to keep everything per CDC guideline. Um, so it's going to be a different Super Bowl than you've ever seen if things, you know, they won't have a vaccine by then. So uh, it's going to be different than you guys have ever seen, but it'll still go on as far as I'm concerned, as far as I, as far as I know. I also uh, worked on the um, last Democratic National Convention, and as you all saw, it went on. Um, it was different. We were all in masks. It was a lot smaller, but uh, we still continued. So, yeah, what kind of protections or precautions are they putting in place for the workforce, you know, that's working on these games and things like that? There's a lot of protection for the players and they get tested very often for the virus and things like that. Uh, what about the people like you that are behind the scenes? 
Well, I haven't, they haven't shared all the stuff they're going to do for game week for when we uh, do the install and, and get ready for the game. But when I went for the, uh, the site visit this week, um, we all had to be checked. Our temperatures were checked. We had to answer all the questions. We had to social distance um, during our, our meetings. Um, so we did all the current guidelines that are you're seeing throughout the country. Um, when I did the Democratic National Convention, we were tested every day. And you got your results by that evening and you couldn't get on site without a, a healthy uh, test. And um, from that point on, you wore your masks, your social distance, and, and we, we were as safe as we possibly could be. Well, I have to uh, congratulate you for, A, uh, helping to build confidence through these kinds of efforts in these events again, because... That's the only way that they're going to be successful in the future, yeah. I think, is if people feel comfortable in, in actually participating and or attending uh, these kinds of events. Uh, and B, for actually being able to get some work uh, during this time, because the event industry has been certainly impacted quite hard uh, with the onset of this virus. And I hope that all of our listeners who have been, who have been impacted are, are able to land on their feet somewhere or continue working in this environment. Well, I appreciate that. I um. I, I credit uh, Salt Lake for a part of that. Um, within Salt Lake, uh, it helped me build a really good reputation. And um, so I get called to do some of these. Um, so it's uh, I'm very fortunate. All right. Well, credit where credit is due, Salt Lake 2002. Let's talk about those games. And you mentioned that you were commuting from Tucson. So I want to ask you how you what you were doing before uh, starting to work on the Salt Lake 2002 games and how did you become involved in them? Well, I worked with uh, Jerry Anderson, who was the head of venue infrastructure, and uh, he and I worked together on the 1994 FIFA World Cup. Um, he was working for the same company I was working as was Todd Barnes. Um, we uh, he needed some help. I was actually working on hospitals and micro electronic clean rooms and uh, he needed some help. And I took on the Foxborough venue and the Detroit venue and Jerry and I hit it off. Um, we got involved again uh, in 1996 in the Atlanta games. And uh, he was just getting ready to start Salt Lake. Um, but uh, he and he asked me to come with him and, and with his act team. And I had young children and we were working for Fleur Daniels, so I couldn't do it then. But in 1999, uh, he reached out again and I said, sure. And I stopped working for um, for Fleur Daniel and went to work for the for Slock as, as a consultant. And uh, we've been together together ever since we had until he, he recently passed um, much to our, our all of our sadness. But he, uh, he and I hit it off and I have just moved on from there. So Jerry finally convinces you to come to Salt Lake, albeit you have small children and you're commuting from Tucson to Salt Lake City, yes. I guess on a regular basis. And what were you doing in Salt Lake? What did Jerry have you doing? What was your role? My official title, according to uh, the uh, Salt Lake City people, were was electrical consultant. But what I was was in charge of all the overlay um, electrical and um, providing power. I was the I did the designs, the original designs for every venue of how much power would be required. We procured it from uh, the the eventual sponsor, Agreco. Um, I managed uh, Utah Power and their um, involvement and their sponsorship and how much power we 
provided for each venue. Um, I managed the budget. So I did all the change orders from the scope of work to the final. Um, and I actually, instead of having a staff, what happens in, in current games is they hire a uh, electrical director uh, within the organizing committee. And then he has venue energy managers that are at every venue. Um, since we had a sponsor and we for both sides, the uh, utility and the temporary power, I used their team captains as my team, and we just built one cohesive energy team from all the players. So everybody had skin in the game, and uh, it was very, very successful. Uh, we, I think we had a few seconds of power outage uh, during the whole event and the Paralympics. So um, it ran like a, like a Swiss watch. It was very good. I know in some of the cases, we've used it as an example of what to do. So it makes me feel very proud and uh, very fortunate. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about this model. You, you talked about, and, and I'm familiar with this uh, still being in the game space, there being an energy department in an organizing committee now with the head of energy and uh, with venue energy managers, as you just said. Uh, and that model is a little bit different than what operated in Salt Lake City because you had the sponsors. Is it because they are unable to secure sponsors in these areas that they don't follow the Salt Lake model? Or you know, what's the reason behind choosing one particular model over another? I've had conversations with uh, John Giancarlo and, and some of the people with the IOC talking about this. Uh, they feel like they need to have, the organizing committee needs to have representatives. Um, the sponsors are there. Uh, Greco is the sponsor for Tokyo. And so they're still there. And my, my feelings on it, the reason why I didn't push for any other people was we're installing the Agreco equipment by the Agreco people. So why would I hire somebody who doesn't work for Agreco, who doesn't have any idea of what they do, to manage what they do every day for concerts and basketball games and umpteen other events that are uh, that are going on throughout the the world? I, to try to find someone who is qualified to manage them just didn't seem. Uh, efficient to me. So I use their team captains, many of who I'm still friends with because they became my staff um, and we're still very close. Um, I And I kind of handle every event the same way. I do the Super Bowl the same way. We hire a, uh, uh, a power provider and that power provider, I work hand in hand along with the, uh, the uh, facility staff people. And we build one cohesive team and we use each other's services. And I'm just kind of the overseer and the manager who kind of makes it all take place. I'm also the engineer who designs it all. So it's, we kind of make a really good cohesive team. But everybody knows if something goes wrong, we're all in it. It's not, um, well, it was your fault because you're the, you're the committee. Um, uh, that's just kind of how I built the, the, uh, the, that team. And as I say, it was very, very successful. Um, uh, so I, I don't, John and, and some of the other guys have not proven to me why, why we should change. Um, I've been part of the, I've, 
been fortunate enough to have worked in Vancouver and assisted him there. I worked in uh, London. I worked in Sochi. I worked in uh, Pyeongchang, Rio. And I kind of acted as a, uh, an expert for him and tried to help them through and set up uh, set up their teams with their venue energy managers, um, tried to give them some insight. Um, but it's tough. Uh, you have a lot of guys who have no event experience. I mean, their event experience is that they sh- they've been to a U2 concert. And so it's kind of hard to give them enough insight to be able to manage an Agreco team that has been doing this for 20 years. No, that's a very good point. You know, in a place like Pyeongchang, for example, where you have a lot of government secondees, you may get yeah. someone running energy who is seconded from the public utility, yeah. uh, for example. And yeah, yeah. And do, they do not have the event experience. But I'm not here to cast judgment on the IOC and how they run their operations. And and so I will I will leave that to the side for now. But what I want to come back to is you come in three years ahead of time and you are putting together this energy plan, the power plan to make sure that the games run. In order to do that, you need to understand the requirements of all the different functional areas and their needs for energy. But sometimes they don't know what their needs for energy are because maybe the functional area isn't run by uh, someone who has games experience or they are still trying to figure out what their service levels are going to be and what venues are going to be at and so on and so forth. So how do you navigate this dance of having to build this energy plan for the games while trying to, I don't know, maybe... Uh, guide <laughs> the people in the organizing committee and help them uh, determine what their energy requirements are going to be. Well, you're working hand in hand with the uh, overlay uh, site managers, venue managers. And so you're understanding we're all meeting with the functional users, the various functional users, and we understand what the agreements are, are that these people want or that they're going to need. Um, If there are unknowns, I sat and interviewed them. I would meet with them and say, well, what do you want? What do you, if you could have have anything you wanted, what would you want? How many trailers? How much of this? Would you have any special equipment? And I would document all that and then use that to create my my load analysis. Um, Also, you do uh, extensive venue assessments. Um, One of the things that I think is kind of slipping with uh, some of the uh, systems now or the way that they're putting these things together is we're spending billions and billions of dollars on these brand new facilities. And then we're hiring a sponsor like an Agreco or somebody to provide a lot of generators. And to me, I would think we would assess the venue, which is what we do for Super Bowl and utilize it to its most to highest point. And then fill in the holes with the Agrecos and guys like that. Um, uh, we did that. That's exactly what we did in Salt Lake. And many of the venues, we we tried to utilize as much house power as we could for for everything. We only used the did the compounds from generators and from uh, temporary transformers. Well. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, and I apologize to everybody. I find this topic fascinating. We have seen uh, significant advances in renewables and battery storage, battery technology, and things like this. Uh, As you look to the future of the movement, what place do you see for electrical battery storage technologies to come in and help supplement and help the games become more carbon neutral? From from my from the get go, when I worked in Salt Lake, I hoped Utah Power was all 
renewable energy. I hope the utility companies that are providing energy for these cities that are uh, hosting uh, on the Olympic Games and, and these very large events, I hope they're extremely renewable. That's where we would that's where we can get renewable energy. Unfortunately, when we're talking about overlay and hired equipment and hired materials, there can be a lot of batteries until we get the suppliers to get to carry all that equipment in their inventories that we can utilize. It's kind of a moot point. Um, we're we're trying to put something on an event. We're not trying to change their, the way that energy is delivered. Um, I, again, I, I promote that all the utility companies be as renewable as they can. I know for LA, I helped LA 2028. 20, uh, when they were trying to get 2024 and um, they're supposed to be 50% renewable by 2028 for everything. The whole state will be 50% renewable, which is a great thing that helps keep the carbon footprint down. It's great environmentally. And I, I hope all the utility companies go that way. That's how we will become uh, um, more efficient in that, in that phase. Well, I hope it gets uh I hope the advances continue for LA 2028. Super excited about that. I mean, California has been having some struggles here with the wildfires and the heat that's been taxing the energy infrastructure in, yeah. in California. They've had to deal with rolling blackouts and everything. I hope they can get those problems resolved before the 2028 games. But let's leave 2028 aside. We'll come back to Salt Lake. You mentioned Jerry. Uh, certainly an icon in the industry. What were some of the interesting people that you worked with there in the organizing committee? I know it's hard to name names, but I'm sure you had experiences with with certain individuals that uh, were either hilarious or really inspiring. You know, what were some of the the interesting stories you had working with your team members there in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? Well, the the men I respected the most were probably um, Jerry and and Grant Thomas. I respected him a lot. Frazier Bullock respected him a lot. Um, Mitt Romney goes without saying. Um, as far as the individual venue guys, uh, I still work with Todd. So he and I are, are very close. We still trust each other. Um, it, we know each other. We know our families uh, know each other. Uh, Mike Halchek uh, ran the uh, Soldier Hollow uh, venue. He was the venue lead on that. And he and I live in, he lives in Tucson. So we still see each other on occasion. Um, there's so many of the people who were with Jerry that are then followed him to HOK and on to Populous um, that I see all the time. And we're still very, very close. Um, Karen Koppel ran uh, East Center or Delta Center and was in charge of a lot of the ice venues. Her and I have worked together in Vancouver. We work together um, on other projects. We still talk to each other at least a few times a year. Um, Trish Fenton, who I think was with the event uh, management group, and uh, we we got we worked on a number of Super Bowls together and uh, on other events. We did uh, the 2015 uh, European Games. She was in charge of power and uh, broadcast for that. So uh, she brought me on and, and we all have a good trust with each other. Um, the games in Salt Lake went so well. Um, it, it was such an example of how to do things that uh, many of us uh, continue to to follow the same uh, patterns on all the other events that we, we do or as best we can. And uh, I, there's too many people to mention uh, with uh, with all the other uh, venues, but uh, I got along well with everybody. There's nobody I didn't.
Well, I feel the same way. It was a great team. Everybody got along. It was a lot of fun. That doesn't mean that it was always easy. The, the work was hard sometimes. Uh, you worked a lot of hours, but you always yeah. do on these events. Uh, was it completely smooth sailing or were there any challenges that you had to overcome as you were planning and delivering the games? And if so, what were some of the creative solutions that you devised to address those challenges? Well, um, Grant was with Bechtel and they kind of, he kind of brought a lot of his people with him on that. And they were permanent construction people where we were more event people. And so there's a difference. It, it, there's a vast difference in how all that works. And so I had a few frustrating moments. I'm sure some of the other people you, you might talk to in the office heard me use a little blue language on a couple of occasions since it was an open office situation. Um, in the meantime, I was dealing with uh, issues with my son. Um, he I had drug issues and I had him in a school in Salt Lake, <laughs> outside of Salt Lake. And so I was dealing with those things, too. And those were the frustrations that I had to, to do deal with. But there was a there was a workout facility right across the street from the office and I would leave and I'd say, I'm going to go work out. And I'd work out for an hour, hour and a half, come back and I'd be a lot better. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about life in Salt Lake? You know, uh, so you, you're commuting from Tucson. Had you done work in Salt Lake previously? Was this your first time really spending a lot of time in Salt Lake City? It was my first time in Salt Lake City was when I came to do the interview with Jerry and and him telling me what he wanted me to do. Um, basically, we used the VIK from the various hotels. Um, I stayed in hotels until the last probably three months. And then they put me in an apartment right up from uh, Temple Square uh, so I could walk. I loved Salt Lake. I thought it was a great place. Um, I love skiing. I'm not a very good skier, but I love doing it. Um, I had some ser serious knee issues, so it made it a little more difficult. But uh, during the Paralympic Games, since the games went so well, um, I skied a lot during the Paralympics because there wasn't any, I knew everything was going to work fine because it was a third of what we had already done. Um, and, uh, it was a beautiful place. I, I have been back since my wife and I have spent time in, in park city since then. You mentioned that games time, uh, went pretty smoothly. What were you doing during the games? Were you in the mock? Were you just roving around venues? I mean, what was what was a day in the life of Kevin like during games time in Salt Lake? I was in my office, which was a floor below the mock. And so I had radios for all for the two different area, uh, two different power companies. I had a radio that I could get in touch with anybody at, uh, with a Greco. Um, and I would go out to the individual venues on occasion just to make sure everything was running smooth. And they all did. Um, everything went really well. Uh, I had no trouble calls. Um, we had, like I said, we had one small engine that uh, that didn't start right away. And I think we had a few seconds of outage, but um, everything went really well. We had a generator that got set on fire. That was uh, <laughs> by protesters who set up, set an engine on fire, but they put it out and we are, it was a backup. So it didn't do any damage. It didn't take anybody off air. And so it was all, uh, all really good. Um, one frustrating point was uh, gold, the metals plaza. Um, and it was just miscalculation by the show people of how much power we needed. We brought, they, we brought what they said they wanted and they needed probably about maybe less than 20% of what they said they needed. And so since we're running it all on engines for the generators, we actually had to put heaters onto the generators so they wouldn't carbon up and shut down. 
just to give them some load. Uh, and so we mimicked load and we we're heating the outside to, to try to keep the plaza games, get plaza going. But uh, it was that type of stuff. Um, we worked so well together. Um, Agreco and I worked so well together. I actually uh, presented all their change orders because I knew my scope of work and I knew what they were doing and I knew the variance. So it just made sense. Wow. That's really interesting. <laughs> Who knew that the, there were these kind of challenges in the metals plaza, you know, nobody uh, from a spectator perspective ever had any clue that yeah, any of that stuff was going on. All behind the scenes. All behind the scenes. Uh, any other behind the scenes stories that you have on your memory bank that you, that you want to share with us this morning? It was so, uh, like I said, the games went so smoothly. There really weren't a lot of, uh, of, problems. And I purposely would not tell the Agreco captains that I was showing up on a venue. I would just arbitrarily pick one and, and show up, uh, just cause I wanted to see the venue being installed and see it as it is not as you made it look when I'm inspecting and looking at it. Um, I do the same thing with the Super Bowl. I just walk and show up. Uh, so I can get a better feel for what's really happening as opposed to what you're making me think is happening. Um, but it was, it was good. Uh, our biggest challenge was getting engines off the mountains, like in snow basin. Um, it was during the, the demobilization, uh, the weather got warm, so warm, and we had the, uh, engines up so high and they're so heavy that the helicopter almost didn't get it. Um, it, we knocked a couple of trees down trying to drag it to a lower, um, altitude so that they could actually get some lift and pull up the, the heavy engine. Um, there's the Agreco guys have some video that is pretty scary because they were still skiing down below. And had we lost the generator, it would have gone all the way down the slope to the bottom. But, uh, yeah, it that, those were the types of things that were a little, little concerning, but, uh, but it all went well and we, you know, we handled it well. That was during the, the, the dismantling. So, Wow, that's crazy. I want to come back to living in a hotel. Yeah. What is that like doing that for such an extended period of time uh, when you are commuting and you just, you know, Maybe you're spending five days here in Salt Lake and then going home for the weekend or whatever it is uh, for an extended period of time. What's that like having to do that kind of commute and living in a hotel all the time? The, fresh, the most frustrating part of the commute was that I flew Delta every week to and from for three years, more than three years, and I didn't get a mile even though I was a medallion member because they were a sponsor. That was very frustrating. So I not only did not get any miles, I lost what status I had because they weren't recording anything, but the hotels, my wife would tell you that, uh, I'm kind of a weird weirdo on that. I would prefer a hotel. I don't cook. She does all the cooking at our house. Um, food is, I'm not a food person. Uh, food is something to fill me when I'm hungry. So, uh, I pick up something on the way back. Um, I did do a little cooking when, um, I would had my apartment, but it was mostly microwave stuff. Um, so I prefer a hotel and I've done it since I've tried to talk the Super Bowl into, they do apartments because people are there for 30 days. I'm there for seven. So I think 
you know, I should just stay in a hotel. I'm comfortable with it and and it doesn't bother me. Uh, I know a lot of people get very, um, they feel very enclosed and trapped in hotels. I don't, I'm not like that. The one thing that I do like to do is I like to be able to prepare myself some food. Right. I'm not a chef by any means, but if I, if I'm in like in a residence in kind of a thing or yeah. an extended stay where I do have a little bit of a kitchen and if I do want to just fry an egg, you know, I can do that. Um, then that's fine with me, but I'm otherwise, yeah, I'm very happy to have hotel staff come and clean my room every day. And, <laughs> and I always have clean sheets on the bed and clean towels hanging in the bathroom. And I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. All right. Very, very interesting. So the games end, you spend some time skiing during the Paralympic games. Uh, when does your tenure working on the Salt Lake games finally wrap up? And then what do you do from there? As a consultant that they wrapped up shortly within 30 days. I mean, it was done. I got my final payment and then that was it. Um, as far as what I went to then was I moved on to other events. Um, I was already working on the Super Bowl, so I continued to work on the Super Bowl. Um, I took on a bunch of other projects. I, I, like I said, I got involved in the 2007 Cricket World Cup. I got involved in the 2010 World Equestrian Games. Um, I assisted on the 2014 uh, FIFA World Cup. Uh, I worked in, as I say, uh, Vancouver. I worked on um, uh, then London and London. I did. We started going. Jerry brought me into London in 2006. And so um, I worked in London for six years on and off two weeks at a time. I would go to London and be there for two weeks and then go home for a week or two and then be back. Um, uh, we the 2004 games in uh, Athens or in uh, Athens and then Torino in 2006. Uh, we, I helped the Greco with their bids, but it was awarded by sponsorship to GE. And so they didn't get it. And GE was doing their own thing. Uh, same thing happened in uh, Beijing in 2008. So I didn't really have any involvement in those, but like I said, during that time I was working on other events. Um, so it's, it's turned in, uh, I'm, I'm now a, as I say, I'm a director with ME in 2010. Um, when I was working on Vancouver, I actually around 2008, 2009, ME engineers, Jerry was sharing office space with them. They had let him in so he could do his own HOK office in Denver. And they had him in their office with a space. And they wanted to do the Super Bowl. And um, Jerry said, well, then you need to hire Kevin. And so they had me come in. Um, at the time, they didn't really understand the event business. And so they said, yeah, you can come in. But while you're doing that, we're going to have you working on the stadium in New York and Washington. And I said, no, I can keep myself really busy with just events. And so we negotiated for two years. And in 2010, at the end of uh, Vancouver, um, we joined forces. Um, I'm, like I say, I'm the, I'm the director of the event services, and it's been a good mix since then. Um, we've gone after a lot of uh, a lot of the games. Uh, haven't been successful in doing all of it. Uh, what happened in London was there was a tender that came out while I was working independently. There was a the tender came out for the engineering services, and Atkins took it. Atkins, I'm sorry, not Atkins. Atkins. Um, as a whole, because they're 
all engineers. And I couldn't even answer the tender because as an individual, there was too much. Um, and ho- I was hoping that joining forces with ME would allow us to to go after those types of jobs. And we still are. We, we answer a number of tenders, but uh, we haven't been successful in getting one of the large events. Um, hopefully that'll change. Well, I hope so too. At least you're probably earning frequent flyer miles and getting status back on the airlines. Yeah, now I'm a million miler with uh, two different airlines and I should be one with Delta. So it should be three. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm mostly on the Delta. So I got the 2 million on Delta, but I haven't quite got to the million on American and United yet, but I'm, I'm inching up, Um, but it's hard because, you know, Salt Lake city is a Delta hub. And so most of the flights uh, I take are usually uh, Delta flights. Anyway, enough about frequent flyer talk. Any other interesting stories about Salt Lake, your experience there, either working or living in Salt Lake that you care to share before we get to our final segment? Um, no, I think we I think we covered it all. Okay, fantastic. So we'll wrap our show up today with the three questions. The first question's a music question. So uh, as you were living and working and commuting to and from Salt Lake City, uh, was there a particular song or a musical artist that whenever you hear them today, uh, it takes you back to your time in Salt Lake? Uh, Allison Krauss and Union Station with When You Say Nothing At All. It's the first time I'd heard it. Um, it's a beautiful song. And uh, I heard it working in Salt Lake. So um, that's that's the song. That's the song. Allison Krauss. Well, that's the first time Allison has been nominated to be wow. on the on the playlist. So very yeah. happy to add Allison Krauss to our Spotify playlist. And listeners can just go on to Spotify. You can just do a search for Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective. It will pull up the podcast, but it will also pull up the playlist of songs. And uh, you're more than welcome to listen to all of the songs that have been nominated by our guests. Now you said that food was kind of a, well, it's just fuel to keep you going, but was there a particular restaurant that you like to go to when you were working there in Salt Lake? Chris, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm the wrong guy for that question. And I thought about that, that question. I really am. I would go when I would finish the, uh, the day, if I hadn't worked out in the middle of the day, I would go to the health club, get a workout in and pick up chicken nuggets or something on the way home uh, and just something to eat. I, I really am not a foodie type person. Um, I, I just am not. Uh, so none of the restaurants, I mean, the, the red iguana, the blue iguana, I mean, we all tried all of them. I, w- I will say though, now that I think about it, there was the, um, the Chinese place in Bountiful that was awesome. Uh, the Chinese food is some of the best I ever had. Um, I can't. It's even called the Mandarin. Mandarin. It was unbelievable. But I only went there on occasion, and I only went when the old team went. I would go with them. Well, I'm very happy to put the Mandarin on the map. You're the first person to mention the Mandarin. Awesome. We've got a map on the website, so you can go there and you can see all of the restaurants that have been nominated by people. It's still there. I believe so. Yeah. Of course, I haven't checked really since COVID and everything. But yes, uh, up until recently, at least they were there. Now, I'm like you in the sense I love food, but I couldn't tell you the difference between the 25 different spices that people use on food or anything like this. I'm certainly not a foodie, but I do love food. 
And uh, <laughs> I maybe it's maybe it's a bit of a shame to admit it, but my go-to in Switzerland when I go to the IOC, if I'm in Lausanne, is to basically just stop at the the Cope or the Migro and get a sandwich and a bag of paprika chips and uh, yeah. sparkling <laughs> apple juice or uh, Guarana, which they sell there, which is it's Brazilian, but they sell it there in Switzerland. And I will go back to my hotel room and eat it. And that's probably my go-to meal when I'm there. That's it. When I was in London, a lot of times uh, you couldn't get peanut butter in London. So I would bring the little uh, to-go GIF packets and I'd stick them in my suitcase and I'd just pick up a baguette on the way home and have peanut butter and <laughs> the bottled water that was in my hotel and, and a, a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> Probably another thing that I'm not necessarily completely proud of, but yes, in London, I would, I would stop at the Tesco, you know, the little yeah. Tesco store and I would buy one of these little microwave meals like spaghetti carbonara or something. And I would eat that in my hotel room. And to this day, uh, it's one of my favorite things to do is just go to the Tesco or a Marks and Spencer and get a little microwave meal that I just throw in the microwave and I eat it. It's pretty pretty tasty. Now everybody's listening to this podcast saying, oh, come on, Christian, you're disgusting. But hey, <laughs> I'll fess up. I'm with you, Chris. I, I that would do the same thing. I mean, I would pick up something. There was a burrito place in London uh, in the little plaza uh, on the way to the hotel, and I would stop there and just get a burrito. I mean, it's food is just something, like, like I said, that just fills me up. All right. Well, we'll move from the chore of food <laughs> to the beautiful moments of the game. So as you reflect back on your time commuting to and from and working in Salt Lake City, either during games time or before games time, a competition or something behind the scenes, what was your kind of feel good goosebump moment? Whenever you think about it, it just warms your heart. Opening ceremonies. Um, I had never seen one and to, it was so cold. I was sitting with the Agreco guys. Cause as I said, we made such a great team. Uh, they gave me one of the tickets that they had to opening ceremonies. Um, I'd never seen anything like it. Um, I've had the opportunity to go to others and I've turned it down cause I didn't want it to pale that, uh, that memory. And so, uh, it was, I felt very, very good knowing we did something very, very well. Yes, many people have talked about the ceremonies and the ceremonies in Salt Lake City were special, not only because they opened the games here, but also because of the impact of 9-11 and yeah. uh, those ceremonies, they just carried an extra, I don't know, an extra amount of gravitas, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so they were very, very emotional. So I appreciate you very much uh, mentioning the opening ceremonies. Well, Kevin, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast this morning. If Thanks, our Sam. listeners want to learn more about the work that you do with ME uh, Engineering or they want to reconnect and remember, share some of those memories of uh, the Salt Lake 2002 games, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Well, ME has uh, their own website at uh, me-engineerswiththes.com. And uh, you can reach me at uh, my email address at kevin.marshke at me-engineers.com. All right, Kevin. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. Listeners, please like and subscribe to this podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you, Christian. <laughs>